Satan will do anything possible to lead you away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. The devil will do anything possible, anything at his disposal to lead you away from a sincere and pure devotion to your Savior, Jesus. Why? Because the devil hates you. He really hates you specifically. And Satan hates Jesus' love for us, and he hates our love for Jesus. He does not want us to be smitten by Jesus. He wants us to doubt God's love for us. He wants us to question God's character. He wants us to be unsure of God's word. And he wants us to criticize his bride, the church. Listen, God's love for us and our love for God are nails on the chalkboard to the devil. The cross angers Satan, seething, blood-boiling anger. And so when you rehearse the gospel, and when you remind yourself of Christ crucified, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you, so that in him you might become the righteousness of God, when you rehearse that truth, the devil screams, No! He can't stand it. And that's why the devil will do anything to lead you away from Jesus. Now, of course, if you are in Christ, he cannot ultimately lead you away from Jesus. You are safe in Christ forever. The theological phrase for that is called the perseverance of the saints. You will persevere You will endure because you are in Christ. So once in Christ, we cannot lose our salvation. As so many people have said, if we could lose our salvation, we would, right? Once in Christ, we cannot lose our salvation. But that doesn't stop the devil from trying to pull us away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. He will settle for us merely admiring and appreciating Jesus. He'll settle for the affections of our heart cooling. And knowing that he can't touch us, he'll do his best to make our life miserable. He wants to destroy you. He wants to ruin you. What he doesn't want for you is for you to be smitten by Jesus. He doesn't want us to echo David in Psalm 63 who said, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So we're in 2 Corinthians and there were some in the church in Corinth who were being led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus by that group of false teachers that Paul calls the super apostles. So Paul, the ever-loving pastor, is going to do everything that he can. He's going to do his part to rescue them from the snares of the devil. So 
2 Corinthians chapter 11. While you're turning there, let me tell you that I'm going to be on vacation for the next two weeks, and I'm ready. (laughs) And I'm going to enjoy the Lord, and I'm going to enjoy my family. And Pastor James is going to be preaching the next two weeks. You want to come back for that? But he's at kickback today, as Ken already mentioned, so... uh, or Chet mentioned, so let's be praying for James and our youth staff and our youth for today and tomorrow that we want to pray that their hearts are not led away from a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. So would you kind of be intentional today and tomorrow to be praying for our students? James will be in the pulpit for the next two weeks. Today we're in 2 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed... Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So when Paul asks the Corinthians in verse 1 to bear with him in a little foolishness, he's talking about boasting. And in this section, Paul will give the Corinthians three reasons why he boasts. Reason number one for boasting is that Paul is jealous for them with the heart of Jesus. Notice the word for there. That word tells us why, and it gives us the reason why Paul must boast, because he is jealous for the Corinthians with the jealousy of Christ. He will stoop to the super apostles level, and he will boast, that's what they valued, but he will not play by their rules. Paul will play their boasting game because he is jealous for this church that he planted. He loves them. He will do anything to protect them. He will even boast, which he really doesn't want to do. Paul knows that Satan will do anything possible to lead them away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. So Paul will do anything possible to lead them back, even boast. Remember, the super apostles boasted about their gifts and their preaching abilities and their knowledge and they made ministry all about them. And Paul's like, okay, I'll stoop to your level and boast just to win back their hearts. But Paul does not want to talk about himself. He does not want to defend himself, but he knows he must do that in order to win back the Corinthians. And so Paul feels this burden to do so because he planted this church. He introduced them to Jesus. He betrothed them to Jesus. He presented them as a pure virgin to Jesus. One commentator says about this passage, Paul is very conscious that it is no business of an apostle or indeed of any Christian to praise himself. Such self-commendation is only justified in the present instance because his affection for his converts is so great that he will go to almost any length to prevent them from becoming dupes of unscrupulous men and to keep them loyal to Christ. But the Corinthians have been deceived. Just like Eve was deceived by the serpent's craftiness, so too Paul fears that the Corinthians have been led away from God. And 
Notice that Paul says it's their thoughts that have led them away. This is where it starts. There's a lot of talk about Christians deconstructing their faith these days. Where does that deconstruction start? It starts in their minds. It starts with their thoughts. As I said a few weeks ago, the most important thought that you will ever think is what you think when you think of God because that thought will determine every single dimension of your life. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given moment may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And goes on from there. The Corinthians' simple, basic theology was being corrupted by the super apostles. They were getting a wrong answer to the question, What is God like? And thus began their drift from the gospel. And when this happens, when someone is led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, it does not happen overnight. It begins in the mind. It begins with your thinking, your thoughts. It begins just like it did with our first parents, Adam and Eve. It begins with words like, Did God really say? Did God really say that? And that's what our world is posing. The questions that our culture and social media is posing. Did God really say? Did God really say that about gender? Did God really say that about identity? Did God really say that about marriage? Did God really say that about sex? Did God really say that about abortion? Did God really say that about hell? Did God really say that about eternal judgment? Do you know what the first lie was that was pitched by Satan to Adam and Eve? His first lie was, there will be no judgment there will be no consequences for disobeying God. Listen again to that very familiar story out of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. There it is. There's the lie. You will not surely die. The devil told Adam and Eve that they wouldn't die, meaning that they wouldn't have to experience death, meaning that they would not be judged by God For their sin. So the serpent was basically saying, God won't judge you for your sin. 
The devil was denying what many pastors in churches deny these days. Judgment. The J word. It's not a popular word in churches anymore, is it? Judgment. It's the devil's first and oldest lie. God will not judge you. But there is a hell to fear because a talking snake showed up in a garden with our first parents and he began asking them questions. And the first noxious lie that that talking snake said after asking Adam and Eve a question was this, God will not judge you. How many people today still fall for that lie? How many people in the church still fall for the very first lie that there will be no judgment? Listen, Satan wants people to believe that God is so loving, so kind, so merciful that he will not hold people accountable. Satan wants people to believe that God is a softy, that he's soft on sin, that he's just this big teddy bear that in the end will just fling wide the gates of heaven so that everybody can come in. That was the first lie. No judgment. And it's still a bestseller to this day. Don't fall for that lie. There is a judgment to come. There is a hell to fear. There is a God to fear. And the only way to escape is to flee to Jesus. And the good news is that God offers amnesty to rebels like us. He offers amnesty. He forgives sinners. He's good. He's very good to very bad people. That's the gospel. And the Corinthians, believe it or not, were abandoning that. Paul says in verse 4 that they were putting up with a different Jesus being preached by the super apostles. They were accepting a different spirit, a different gospel. And so Paul will give Reason number two for boasting now. He says the Corinthians are believing a counterfeit gospel. Notice again the word for in verse four. Paul is giving them another reason why he is going to boast foolishly. The reason why Paul must boast and defend his credentials as an apostle of the Lord is because the Corinthians were beginning to, number one, receive another Jesus. Number two, receive a different spirit. Number three, accept a different gospel. And then shockingly, number four, they were putting up with this. They were putting up with this false theology. They were abandoning a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus in favor of a different gospel that proclaimed a different Jesus in the power of a different spirit. The different Jesus was one you had to try and please with your works and your performance, not his. The different spirit was the human spirit that tried hard in its own effort and power to please God by works, not the Holy Spirit whom is given to all believers at regeneration. The different gospel was a gospel of works, what you do that gets you right with God and not what God has already done for you in Christ. And the most shocking thing of this all to Paul is that they were putting up with this. They were allowing this to be taught in their Sunday school classes. And this surprises Paul. He cannot believe it. And that's why Paul moves to action. Understand that Paul's very pastoral here. Like any good shepherd or leader or parent, 
Paul will do anything to protect his flock. And that's why Paul will boast about his credentials, to rescue them from the clutches of the deceitful super apostles. Paul will go on to boast about how he didn't take any money from the Corinthians, but he gave them the gospel free of charge. Look at verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So reason number three for boasting. Paul is not inferior to these super apostles as they claim. Notice the word indeed in verse five. In Greek, it's the, the same word for. It's the Greek word gar, for. Paul uses it here and in verse two and in verse four to give us and to give the Corinthians another reason why he boasts. The super apostles, as I've mentioned, prized eloquent preaching, eloquent communication skills. They were saying that Paul was a terrible preacher. I mean, two thumbs down for this guy. But Paul, knowing Scripture, counters by saying that even if he is a terrible preacher, at least he has knowledge. At least he knows the Word of God. Paul may not have been that great of a preacher. He seems to admit that in verse 5. But where Paul is weak in his preaching abilities, he makes up for in knowledge. He is not inferior when it comes to Bible trivia. Paul knows his Bible. Paul knows the Old Testament, and the Corinthians knew this. But where they had issue with Paul was that he didn't accept any money from them. He didn't get a paycheck from Corinthian Bible Church. Paul worked a regular job when he planted the church, and he served the Corinthians free of charge. He got his financial support from other churches. That's what he means when he says that he robbed other churches. But Paul never took any money from the Corinthians. Why? Because Paul did not want to be a burden to them. Many traveling preachers and teachers during this time charged for their services. Paul did not do that. He was entitled to be supported by the Corinthians. It's biblical to support your pastors financially. 1 Timothy 5, Paul talks about this. And yet he refrained from taking money from the Corinthians. Why? I think Paul must have seen while he was with them in the early days of the church plant that they were not mature enough to understand this truth. And so Paul got his support from other churches. And when he needed help, it came from churches in Macedonia. And so Paul sarcastically says that he robbed other churches in verse 7. He's not literally robbed them. I've seen unbelievers use this and say, Paul admitting to stealing from other churches. I mean, context, buddy, okay? 
Paul did not literally rob them. He's just saying, I was supported by other people. And this is how Paul shows that he is superior to the super apostles. He didn't receive any payment from them. Precisely because he wanted to give them a picture of God's grace in Christ, which was exactly what they needed. Paul wanted to offer the gospel to them free of charge because that's how God offers the gospel to sinners. It's free of charge. Grace is free. If it wasn't free, we couldn't afford it, could we? They were turning to a gospel of works righteousness that said you must earn God's favor by what you do for him. But Paul says, let me show you a picture of the gospel. I will not take any support from you. I'll labor among you for free, just like Jesus did for us. He freely gave. He freely served. You can't earn God's favor because it's free. And I will show you a picture of the gospel by not receiving from you any financial support. And so this is Paul's boast. Contrary to the super apostles, Paul never took any money from them. And it appears that the super apostles did. And that's why Paul says his boasting will not be silenced. He didn't take any of their money to not be a burden to them because he loves the Corinthians. So Paul will boast that he is not like the super apostles. They claim to work in the same way that Paul does. But Paul says, I minister for free, and the super apostles cannot boast about that at all. And then incredibly, the Corinthians think that Paul doesn't love them. They are doubting his motives, and the super apostles are using this to stoke the fires of doubt so that the church would turn on Paul. And the devil is using all of this to pull the Corinthian church away from the gospel to a different gospel, a different spirit, a different Jesus. It's just more proof that Satan will do anything possible to lead you away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. He'll cause you to doubt church leadership and then make you bitter and angry. He'll put the doubt in your head because he knows a crack will open that he can then come in and feed anger and bitterness. The devil will use doubt just like he did with the Corinthians, to pull you away from God. The Corinthians listened to the lies of the super apostles that fed doubts about Paul. And then that led them away from Jesus to a different Jesus. So you can count on it, Grace, and you can bank on it, Christian. Satan will attack your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he will be relentless in doing so. And he will use whatever means, whatever crack he can slip through to get to you. Doubt, fear, worry. He will take whatever crack, whatever foothold you give him, whatever crack he can find. And he will not just push his way through. He'll try to take you further than you've ever been with whatever sin he is wooing you with. If you give him an inch with bitterness, he'll take you a mile and you will end up just deformed in your heart because of bitterness. He'll take anger, what just makes you angry, and he'll take you a mile with that to where you are just deformed in your heart and ugly and grotesque. 
He will take you mile after mile after mile away from Jesus and away from the real gospel. And so you have to get used to saying to him, not today, Satan, not today. When he tempts you, when he whispers to you, you have to say, not today, Satan, not today. Here's what John Owen said about how sin and temptation and about how the devil works. He said, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it, ha- it, ha- if it has uh, its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals, but when it prevails, it hardens men's hearts and brings them to ruin. That's how sin works. That's how our adversary, the devil, works. He wants to ruin your life. His goal is not just to get you to disbelieve. If he could have his way, unbelief would lead to atheism. Unclean thoughts would lead to full-blown adultery. He comes with what seems like reasonable and modest proposals, but his goal is always to lead you and me away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. And so understand this, Grace. Our hearts drift from God in little moments. It happens little by little, not all at once. Life is made up of 10,000 moments, and in these little moments, we're just sowing seeds. And that's why you don't wake up one day having drifted from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. You don't go to bed praising the Lord and wake up and be like, I don't like Jesus anymore. That didn't happen. Thankfully, that didn't happen, right? You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm fully deconstructed. I'm giving up on the church. I don't need fellowship. I can do Christianity on my own. You don't just wake up one day and say that. And you don't wake up one day and say, I'm not sure I believe the Bible is right when it speaks to that matter or this issue. And you don't wake up one day and just say, I don't love my spouse anymore. It happens slowly as your communion with God begins to diminish. As your communion with God begins to evaporate. Now your union with Christ is secure. You're in Christ, but your communion with God, your fellowship with God can have an ebb and a flow. And it happens very slowly and very subtly because Satan knows what he's doing. It happens little by little, day after day, in all of the 10,000 mundane, very ordinary moments of life. Therefore, we must be vigilant about guarding our hearts. As Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart Above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Above all else. What's priority number one for you in your life for me? Guard your heart. Protect it. Be vigilant. Don't let thoughts come in. 
It means that you are vigilant about caring for it. It means you make sure that nothing is creeping in that doesn't belong there. It means that you make sure you are here on Sunday. Listen, there may be people watching the live stream. Some of you need to be here. If in your conscience you think, you know, I'm not ready, whatever. But if you're just sitting at home in pajamas drinking coffee because that's comfortable, you need to be here. I don't say that to condemn you, to make you feel bad. I just know that you need fellowship here with us. We need you. I need you. You need to make sure you're here on Sunday. That's how you guard your heart. You need to make sure you're hearing the word of God preached. That's how you guard your heart. You need to make sure you're enjoying the means of grace like the Lord's Supper. That's how you guard your heart. You need fellowship with other believers. That's how you guard your heart. Listen, if we're going to keep our hearts from being led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, then we have to be in God's word, reading it, meditating on it, thinking about it, memorizing it, studying it, exposing our hearts to this truth, hearing it taught and preached here week after week. You have to hear the law preached and be exposed as a needy sinner. In order to do that, you have to hear God's word. To be reassured of all of the benefits of Christ that come to you in the gospel, you need to hear God's word. To guard your heart, you have to remember that the battle is fought on the turf of your heart. That's where the battlefield is, your heart. And you have to remember that the starting place of spiritual warfare is, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's Jesus, not Satan. The starting place of spiritual warfare is gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and being mesmerized and smitten by your Savior Jesus, your first love. You have to gaze upon Jesus and you have to hear the gospel over and over and over again. You need to hear how Jesus lived for you, died for you, how he was raised and ascended into heaven and he sits at God's right hand as your high priest interceding for you now and he's coming one day to make all things new. And you need to hear how good he is and how kind he is and how loving he is and how merciful he is and how generous and gracious he is. This is how we stand firm in faith. We cling to and we believe the promises of God. We must fight to do whatever it takes to believe all that God is for us in his son Jesus. And that's why we must rehearse the gospel often. Because there are false gospels out there. There are false teachers out there and their goal is simple. To deceive you to pull your heart away from Jesus. Look at verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul again wants to stress that he works on other terms than these false teachers. Even though um, they think it, the super apostles, they are not on the same mission as Paul. And they can't be. Why? 
Because Paul says they are servants of Satan. And their deeds of preaching another Jesus and preaching another gospel will wind them up with the devil himself in hell. Their end, their eternity will correspond with the evil that they were doing in Corinth by preaching another Jesus. Notice how Paul describes the super apostles in these verses. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves. It's kind of like at the end of every Scooby-Doo episode. What happens? They take the mask off of someone and they say, if it wasn't for you meddling kids, I would have gotten away for this. I never picked up on that as a kid. Every episode ends that way. Sorry to spoil it for you. Every episode ends with a mask or something being pulled off of somebody. It's like, it's the librarian. That's how the super apostles are working. They're disguising themselves. Paul goes on to say that this should not surprise the Corinthians because these people are servants of Satan and Satan specializes in disguising himself too. Then notice how Paul has described Satan in this chapter. He's deceptive, verse three, cunning, verse three. He leads people away from Christ, verse three, and he himself disguises himself. Let me ask you this morning, where has the devil been disguising himself in your life? Where have you opened yourself up to him? Where have you given him a foothold? Where has the devil been trying to pull your heart away from Jesus? Where do you need to resist him today? Maybe it's bitterness, anger, lust, or doubt. Remember, he hates you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy you, this church. But he comes with these modest proposals, kind of takes the lid off and goes, look, it's just a little lust. It's just a little bitterness. You, you, can, you can be bitter for a moment, just kind of play with it. But his goal is to destroy your life. And one thing that jumped out to me this morning as I was thinking about this passage is that This is all relational. 2 Corinthians is all about relational strain between Paul and the Corinthians. And that's often the crack that the devil tries to get in through. Where is there relational strain in your life? And I will show you that's how the devil is trying to get into your life. Where is there relational strain? Maybe you need to forgive Maybe you need to go to someone and apologize. Maybe you need to go and say, let's clear the air. That's often the crack the devil tries to get through. He destroys relationships. Well, the bottom line with the super apostles is that they are serving Satan. And Satan has as his master plan to deceive God's people. It's been his MO from the very beginning. Remember, Satan will do anything possible to lead you away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. He not only tempts us to remember our list of 10,000 sins, but he also tempts us to forget the cross. He wants us to over-remember our sins and under-remember the cross. So guard your heart, Grace. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't get sucker-punched by Satan. 
Remember that we are more in Christ than we are anything else. And there's more Christ in us than sin and brokenness. Our God is 10,000 times more for us than Satan is against us. So let's pray today as a church family that the Holy Spirit would make the gospel so real to us that it will be impossible for us to get sucker punched by Satan's enticements and accusations. And let's pray that the Holy Spirit would free us from under-believing the gospel and free us from over-believing the lies of Satan and free us from listening to the spin of our culture. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit would rub Romans 16.20 into our pores, which says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And what better sign do we have that God will crush Satan under our feet than the Lord's Supper, than communion? This table is a reminder to us that Satan has been defeated by the cross of Jesus. So let's eat and drink and celebrate the defeat of Satan today. Let's eat and say, not today, Satan, not today. And let's drink and let's say, not today, Satan, not today. Let's pray. Jesus, we are the people upon whom you have set your heart and for whom you gave your life and to whom you are returning as a great bridegroom. There's no other relationship that comes close to offering the peace, joy, and hope as your relationship with us. We're counted as pure virgins only because you have clothed our nakedness and sin with the wedding garments of your perfect righteousness. We are devoted to you, Jesus, only because of your love and devotion to us. So fill our hearts and fill this church, even as we take the Lord's Supper, fill us with the sights and sounds of the great wedding feast to come. May we live expectantly, faithfully, and obediently to the praise of your glorious grace. Forgive us of our many sins, Lord, and strengthen us by your grace today. In Jesus' name. Amen.